Turn, if you would, would tonight to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians 16. I hope the week has been good thus far. If not, I apologize. I'm confident it's not completely my fault, but if it is partially my fault, I apologize for what part I played in that. Anyways, 1 Corinthians 16 is where we'll be tonight, so let's go to the Lord in prayer and then we will get started. Father, thank you for the day. Lord, thank you for just another day of life and health and strength. I pray that you would bless now this time in your word, that you would use it to remind us maybe of of what we need to be reminded of, maybe teach us what we need to be taught tonight. Lord, whatever needs to be accomplished, I pray that it would be. I pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week, you may remember, we finished chapter 15. And there we watched as Paul reminded the believers of Corinth that what they were doing was not in vain. The labor, the toil, the things that they were engaged in by way of ministry and service to the Lord, it was not in vain. And the interesting, about, interesting aspect of that was in verse number 58, he told them to be steadfast or unmovable and always abounding in the work of the Lord. And so the suggestion is, or the implication is, is that they had moved away from what they knew they ought to be doing. They had gotten sidetracked, they had got distracted uh, by this doctrine of the resurrection. And so what Paul was doing, it seemed as though he was trying to pull them back to where they needed to be and saying, listen, get to where you're supposed to be. Don't move, don't step away, don't move an inch on this. And get busy serving the Lord again because there is profit to what we are doing, the Apostle Paul would say. And last week I tried reminding us and I tried explaining to us that all of us have struggles of a different sort. We don't all struggle in the same way, but sometimes in the midst of our struggles, we step away from where we're supposed to be, where we know we ought to be. And in the midst of those struggles and stepping away from where we know we ought to be, sometimes we question the value or the worth of what it is we are doing. It's in those moments that we need to get back to where we know we're supposed to be, recognize this truth that there is value in serving the Lord and then getting busy and doing it once more. All right. And so whenever we're struggling, whenever we're getting away, whenever we're wandering in our walk with God, there is a need for us to get back to where we're supposed to be and for us to just get busy serving the Lord as we once did. That being said, tonight I'm going to share something with you that is a confession of sorts, but I would imagine that this has been true of every one of us at least once. So the confession would be this, that there have been times in my life where I have struggled to understand or grasp a concept the first time I was exposed to it. Have you ever been there? You were exposed to some concept, you were exposed to some thought, some idea, and you just had a hard time grasping what it was or, or what it is uh, you were now being exposed to. I was thinking about this. It goes all the way back to my childhood. I'm scarred by this. But I can remember all the way back into my years in school, there were times that I would sit in math class and I simply did not grasp what the teacher was trying to teach. Did you ever experience anything like that? She could draw it up on the board. She could explain it. She could tell you what X was doing, what Y was doing, and, and what all the other letters were doing. And, and I would sit there, and I would listen, and I would try to pay attention. And yet, when she was done with her explanation, I just thought, whatever. I felt the same way whenever it came 
to science. Science was just not a subject that I excelled in, and so the same thing would be true there, that I struggled to get those concepts, to understand theories, to understand equations. It just didn't register with me, and all through life I have had those moments where I'm introduced to some thought, some concept, some idea, and it's not because I'm not trying, it's not because I'm not applying myself, I just don't get it. Now, if you've ever been there, I think you would agree with me on this, that that can be very frustrating, can it not? You know, you want to understand. You really do. You want to grasp it. You want to figure it out. You don't want to feel ignorant about something. And so you want it, but yet it's just not clicking with you. So it can be frustrating. It's especially frustrating when there are people around you who already understand it. And they look at you like you're the dumb one because you don't understand it. Sorry. <laughs> I'm struggling. I'm not understanding it. I mean, you, you can raise your voice, but that's not going to help me under, understand it any better, you know. Uh, I just, I don't get it. So it's frustrating in and of itself, and then it's frustrating if there are people around you who do get it and they act like you're, you know, some kind of an inferior individual because you don't get it. But let me ask you this. Have you ever had one of those aha moments when the light bulb finally comes on and it finally clicks and you go, ah, now I see what you've been telling me the last 35 times. I, I, I finally grasp what you're doing with this equation. I finally understand why you're plugging it in here or why you're doing this or whatever it may be. Whenever we have that aha moment in our lives, I, I want to ask you, doesn't it change your whole attitude and perspective just a little bit? And then you're excited about it, right? And you're not intimidated by it anymore. You're not afraid of it anymore. You, you maybe even enjoy the process because now you understand it when before you didn't. And then maybe you want to tell somebody else, hey, you know what, I, I understand this. I know what I'm doing. And, and if they don't understand it, then guess what? They'd rather you shut up because they're still struggling with it. And if they've understood it for a long time, you know what their response will probably be? Well, yeah. They're not as excited about it as you are, but nonetheless... You cannot help, if you were anything like me, you cannot help but be excited that you finally understand what it is you need to understand. You with me on this? If you don't get it, and you need to, it's frustrating that you can't. But if you finally get it, and you finally understand it, it makes you glad, it makes you happy, and you can't help but be a little bit excited. What does that have to do with Scripture? Well, it'll be a long time before I tell you that, okay? We're going to spend several minutes this evening doing some background work because if we don't do some background work, I think some, not all, but I think some will still be confused at the end of the service. And I know that at the end of this message, some of you may look at me kind of like the person who already understands this and say, uh, yeah, I've got it. I've had it for a long time. I didn't need that one. Well, good. This is one more explanation for maybe the person who is still struggling with it, who is still having a hard time grasping it and applying it in their lives the way that they ought. So for a few minutes tonight, by way of background, by way of context and understanding, I want us to think about what the early church would have looked like. 
what the early church would have looked like, things that we can gather, things that we can piece together from different portions of Scripture. We'll not turn to all of those passages tonight, but, but I just want us to think about this, things that we can detect from the Scripture as to what the early church would have looked like. Oftentimes, in a new church, what we might call a new work, it would not have been completely uncommon for that body of believers, that assembly, to have met in someone's home. They would have met in someone's home, and that is where the church would have been born in that particular town, in that particular city. That is where the church would have been birthed, and it would have stayed there in that home as long as the home could accommodate whoever it was that was showing up to their, to their services, whatever you'd like to call it, their assemblies. And, and if the assemblies or the numbers were too large for the house to accommodate it, then you see indication that there would have been times where they would have met in an open area, in a public area, and that is where they would have had their times of gathering and their times of assembly, where the teaching and the preaching and the fellowship would have taken place. And that's all good and that's all fine, and there's nothing wrong with such an assembly, right? All right. So in their day, they would have had the assembly times, they would have had their days that they came together, for the teaching and the preaching of the Word of God, for the fellowship, for the music, whatever it would have involved, and they would have had a preacher there. How do we know they would have had a preacher? Well, we know in part because the Apostle Paul had some preacher boys that he trained and that he would send to different towns, and, and Timothy and Titus would be just a couple of examples, but we know that there were far more preachers than just Paul, Timothy, and Titus in the early days of the church. So there would have been young men and middle-aged men and older-aged men in the ministry, so to speak. They would have served as the pastors of the church. It would not have been lay people who were running these home churches. It would have been pastors. And I want us to understand this because 1 Corinthians chapter 9 would teach this, is that those churches, for whoever their pastor would be, they would have somewhat of a financial responsibility to take care of that pastor. There was a responsibility on the part of the church family to take care of the financial needs of their pastor, whoever it would have been, some kind of livable wage, if at all possible. So you understand this, right? They may have started in a house. It may have moved eventually to a wide open space. Somewhere, we don't know exactly what would have happened, but they would have assembled. There would have been a preacher there. There would have been someone who was teaching them the words of God. Whatever the format would have looked like, much of it would have been very similar to what we enjoy today. But in their day, it was a very simple, simple time. And there's something to say about that in a positive way. Would you agree? I think churches today are benefited when they keep it simple. Okay. I'm just going to throw this out here, all right, because of the days that we're living in and and kind of the climate that we're living in. If you read through the Scripture, here's what you never find mention of. Things like the, the youth pastor. It's not wrong if a church has a youth pastor, but you don't read of a youth pastor, you know, engaged in a real busy, active youth ministry. 
you just had people coming together for the purpose of church. So the idea of a youth ministry and a youth minister and a full-time youth staff, that would be something that's been adopted in, in recent years in our culture. Now, I'll talk more about that in a couple of moments, but, but, but that is something that you would not have seen in Scripture. You didn't have your worship director back then. You didn't have your facilities manager back then. You didn't have your, your finance manager. You, you didn't have all these different things that we see today. And again, there is something to be uh, admired in the simplicity of the church, what they enjoyed then. It really does serve, I believe, in the best interest of the church, as I've already said, to keep it simple. For moms and dads to come to church with their children, to sit in an assembly with their family, and to enjoy the teaching and the preaching of the Word of God and the fellowship with the saints, that is something that is to be commended and probably modeled more than it is typically in our churches today. So that being said, that is what church once looked like, but church today does not exactly look that way. Not just in who's on staff and what people do in the church, but things are just completely different, right? Right. See, obviously, I don't know if you can tell this or not, but we're not meeting in someone's home tonight. Now, we call this the church, but really this is just the building that facilitates the church because the believers are the church, right? Okay, so you can tell tonight that we're not at someone's house because it's just impossible for any of our homes to accommodate the size crowds that we have because look around how massive we are. Yeah, where are you going to put 45 people? I mean, this is crazy, okay? So I'm just saying my house doesn't have enough room for it, and your house probably doesn't have enough room for it. So we've come into church here inside this building, and then somebody may say something like this. You know, I kind of like the idea of, of church outside like they did back in the old days, back in the Scripture. And you know what I say to that? Yeah, right, you do. You like the idea of that in a very fairy tale kind of way. You know why? Because we are spoiled creatures. We really are. Well, let me illustrate. You know what one of my greatest worries is on a day like today? You know what one of my greatest worries is? It's very simple. What do I put the thermostats on? Because almost every service in these awkward seasons, now, if it's going to be 105 degrees outside, I know, turn on the air conditioners and the fans, I've got it. But in these days where it's kind of hard to know, I've mentioned this many times before, it, it, you know, you're going to have some people sweating and fanning themselves the whole time, and you'll have other people who are wrapped up in, in, in blankets and, and they're freezing cold. And I'm just saying, for those of you who would say, oh, I think it'd be kind of neat to meet outside. No, you don't. Because you never would be satisfied outside of a couple of services a year. Not only that, most of, us, most of us enjoy like soft pews to sit on. I would enjoy it if I were sitting down tonight. I don't know about you, but I like lights. These are all things we're addicted to. 
If you use the restroom tonight before service or if you do so after church, I can promise you this, you're real glad you're not going to the outhouse out back. See, we're addicted to all of these comforts. We're addicted to all of these extras. And so this idea of meeting at someone's house or meeting out in the open, it, it may sound fun and it may sound enjoyable, but it's just not realistic in the culture that we live in today. Then, in addition to all that that, that you've got in, in our day and in our society, you've got me. Uh, Try not to get too excited. But you have me, and, and what am I? Well, I'm your pastor. If you don't like that, something's got to give. Either I've got to go or you've got to go. Uh, and, and I'm hoping that neither one has to take place. But I, I want you to understand something in just a moment, that I am a liability to the church as much as I am an asset to the church, and in, in a sense, all right? Now, I'm going somewhere with this, and I hope I'm also an asset to the church. But I want us to think about this. Back in the day, 2,000 years ago, in the early church, was it simpler? Yes. Was it far more modest than what we enjoy today? Yes. But here we are, and this is what we've got, and it's irreversible, and it's not going to go backwards 2,000 years, at least not anytime soon. And so what does all of this represent? It represents in a business term, overhead. Right? Just built-in expenses. It costs money to turn on the air conditioners or the heaters, right? It costs money to make sure that the lights are on. It costs money every month to make sure that the water stays on. It costs money every month to make sure that the property insurance is in place. It costs money every month to make sure that the needs of the church, the, the facilities are taken care of so that things aren't running down. And then in addition to all of that, because I'm a liability to the church, guess what you have a responsibility to do? You have the responsibility to pay me a livable wage if at all possible. Those are all just built-in expenses. Somebody says, well, I don't think we ought to pay you. Well, you don't understand Scripture. This is not a charitable work completely on my part. So all that being said, here's the bottom line. It takes money to operate what we've got going on here. So here's a really, 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 really simple question. Where do you think the money has to come from? Well, do you get grants? No, we don't get grants. Do you have large donors outside the church that pay all the bills? No. You know this. Where does the money have to come from? You all. You have to. If you want to continue enjoying electricity and plumbing and, and a parking lot that's paved and whatever it is that we've got going on around here, guess who has to finance this? We do. And so here's the church in the early days of the church. And, and no, they didn't have all the expenses. And no, they didn't have all the overhead that, that churches have today. But for whatever expenses they had, for whatever overhead they had, taking care of their pastor, whatever it may be, those needs had to be met by the people plus. Well, plus what? 
Well, notice in verse number 1 what Paul said. He said, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye. So what are we about to understand? What are we about to, to, to see that Paul is writing to them about? He is about to write to them in relation or in regard to financial collections that would have been in addition to what they would already give to meet whatever obligations they as a church family would have. So he is talking to the church in Corinth, as he has done to the church in Galatia, and all of the churches there in the region of Galatia. And if we see in verse number 3, he said this, And when I come, whomsoever ye shall approve by your letters, them will I send to bring your liberality or your generosity unto Jerusalem. So Paul said, here's what's going to happen. I want you to be taking up this collection. We'll look at that in just a moment. And whenever I arrive, here's what's going to happen. You're going to approve someone with the letters that, that, that prove their authenticity, that they represent the church. And here's what's going to happen. I'm going to send them with your gift of liberality or your generosity. And he said in verse number four, and if it be meet that I go also, they shall go with me. So what Paul said is this. Now, if it's determined that I need to go also, then here's what will happen. We'll just go together. So we're going to take up offerings. We're going to receive these offerings, these collections. In addition to what you're already bringing in, we're going to set aside extra money that you would give to help those in Jerusalem who were struggling at the time with real legitimate needs. So do you understand the, the basis here? They had their own church in Corinth. They had their own financial needs, their own financial responsibilities, both personally and both corporately as a church. And yet Paul said, I'm telling you that you need to receive collections on behalf of those who are struggling in Jerusalem. So what's the format? I can tell we're gearing up for this. What is the format? All right, look in verse number two. This is good. In verse number 2, he said this, Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store, as God hath prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. All right, so he said in verse number 2, here is what it's supposed to look like. Upon the first day of the week. Upon the first day of the week. So what does that suggest? It suggests this, that the church in Paul's day assembled on the first day of the week for sure, if at no other time in the week, they certainly assembled on the first day of the week. So for you and I, what would that be? That would be on a Sunday because that's the first day of our calendar. If they ever change the calendar and Sunday becomes Thursday, then we'll meet on Thursday and not on Sunday. Don't get too confused on that one, okay? We'll just try to meet on the first day of the week of the week, if at all possible, all right? So, so Paul said this, that it's upon the first day of the week that you want to receive the collection. Now, let me just pause right quick and, and, and explain something, okay? Just as there were legitimate needs in their day, there are legitimate needs in our day. Amen. Needs that a church can meet and ought to strive to meet, if at all possible. 
Okay, so if there is a need that can be met or should be met by the church, then, then how is it going to happen? It's, it's going to happen as a result of the giving of the saints that would be in addition to whatever it requires to operate this place. So when should giving take place primarily in a church? Well, it says on the first day of the week would be a good habit to get into. Okay, again, I know that things are different, so please don't think that I'm saying if you don't give on Sundays, we don't want your money. If you need to stop by on a Tuesday, feel free. You may say, though, well, Brother Kyle, I understand what you're saying, but I only get paid every two weeks. I get it. I know that not everybody is paid the same. Not, not every pay period falls in the same manner. But I think there's a principle here that we need to understand, that we need to be reminded of, that what Paul seems to be conveying is this, is that their giving ought to be systematic, and it ought to be something that is built in, and something that is regular, and something that they don't even have to think about. It's just something that they are going to do instinctively, if for no other reason, out of habit. Now, why is that important? It's important for this reason. It is not uncommon to hear people in churches say this of their financial status. That people seem to give more sporadically now than in generations past. That with the younger generation, with the younger people, and I know that this would not be true across the board, but in general what we are seeing is with younger people, with younger Christians, with those who maybe haven't been in church as long as others, what they do is they give somewhat sporadically, or they might say, well, we give whenever we feel like we're supposed to give. And what the Apostle Paul would say to that is this, that's really not the best way, and that's really not the best method to approach it with. What you want to do is you want to give systematically. You want to give regular, regularly. You want that to be a habit that you get yourself into. Now, here's where the application, or not the application, but the illustration begins to tie in a little bit. So you may be sitting here tonight and you may say something like this, I get it. I've had it for a long time. I understand that. I don't struggle with that. I've totally got it. I'm just saying our church is not exempt from the struggles that other churches are having in, in our culture today. And, and, and sometimes it is a struggle for people to wrap their minds around and to grasp this concept of giving consistently to the church family that they are a part of. But again, I would say it like this, that if we're going to benefit from something, we ought to be financially invested in it on a regular basis. Amen. Amen. So I'm not mad at you if you struggle with it. I'm not upset at you if, if it's been a hard concept to grasp. But I, I want us to understand for our own benefit and for our own good, this is something that needs to become a, a fixed part of who we are. So upon the first day of the week, when Sunday rolls around, and you got paid sometime in the week prior, what do you need to do? Sit down and write out the check? 
or get the cash, whatever system you decide to use. And it needs to be what you do as regularly as you pay your bills. Now, if you don't pay your bills, do better with your tithe, okay? I'm just saying. That might help you when you're paying your bills if you got more serious and established. But nonetheless, what you want to do is you want to get you want to get set in motion this habit of giving. Notice what he said next in verse number 2. Upon the first day of the week, let who? Every one of you lay by him in store. That word, or those two words, everyone, it's kind of important, isn't it? It is. Because here's what that implies. It implies that this is kind of like a joint effort. Among who? Everyone. It's not just your responsibility to tithe. It's the person beside you. It's their responsibility to tithe, to give. It's not just their responsibility to give. It is your responsibility to give. It is everyone's responsibility to be giving on a systematic basis or in a systematic fashion so that we as a church family might not only meet the needs of our church, but so that we might be able to be a help and be a blessing to others. Now again, this may be all common knowledge for you, and you may say, man, I've had this forever. Again, I'm just saying that there are some who struggle with this. They feel like, well, it's this person's responsibility and that person's responsibility, but it's as much my responsibility as it is your responsibility. This everyone, we also need to understand, does not mean once you reach a certain age. It means like, if you're earning, you need to be giving. It's really very simple. I'm not, I'm not trying to do anything weird here. I'm just trying to illustrate this for some who may struggle with this. For as long as Nathan and Hannah have had jobs, Susie and I have told them, you will tithe, you will give. When do they give? Systematically. Like when they get paid, they should give. Why? Because they are benefiting from this church as much as anyone else is. It's in a different way, possibly. It's in a different manner, possibly. But I need to be teaching my children that, okay, if you went out and you worked and you earned and you made $20, then you need to give to the church according to what you have earned. It's, it's not daddy's and mommy's responsibility to foot the bill because if we teach them that welfare mentality, then when they get older, they'll still expect someone else in the older generation to cover the cost. 
So I'm just saying that if you and I have children that are in the home and they earn money, now I'm not talking about birthday money, okay, or Christmas money, and you say, all right, kid, give to the Lord what belongs to him. Yeah, that's kind of a, a bummer, you know, because that was like a gift. But no, if you go out there and you earn it and, and you've brought it in, you give. Now, if you want to teach your kid to give off of gifts, that's between you and the Lord. I'm just saying our kids need to understand their responsibility. They get to benefit from the lights and the water and everything else, and they get to benefit from a preacher, even though it may be their dad, and, and, and you still need to help in this whole process. So he said, upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store. Now, this is also important, all right, for those who may struggle with this. Notice what it says next, as God hath prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. What does it mean whenever he says, as God hath prospered him? Well, it would mean this, to the extent that you've been blessed or to the extent that you have given, been given income, that is the extent to which you need to give. So what does that mean? It means this, we'll not all give the same. And, and that's not required for anybody. Again, I'll, I'll just use me as an example so that nobody feels like I'm picking on you. Hannah has a job. And I have a job. By the grace of God, I make more money than Hannah. If I didn't, I'd have several jobs. Okay. Now, here's the thing. Hannah has a responsibility to give as much as I have a responsibility to give. But she doesn't have a responsibility to give as much as I give. But she has the responsibility to give. Now, at the same time, to the extent and to the degree that God has prospered me and blessed me, my giving should reflect that, which means I should be giving at a much greater level than what Hannah is. I can't look at what Hannah gives and say, okay, well, that's what I'm going to give. No, it shouldn't be that way. Because I have been blessed with far more, I should be a far better giver by way of numbers, not percentage necessarily, but by way of amount, it should be to a greater extent than what Hannah is giving. Now, again, there could be some who struggle with this because, ah, I don't, man, we just don't have it. We just don't have it. You know, we've got the house payment, we've got car payments, we've got the bills, and we're doing this and we're doing this. Okay, that's not supposed to factor into the equation. What have we been blessed with? What have we been given? And that is what we're supposed to give according to. Now, you might sit here and say, well, Brother Kyle, that's as obvious as dirt. You might be surprised. Over the years, I've been amazed at the number of times of children in our church who have outgiven adults with full-time jobs. Seriously. Like, kids who work part-time jobs have been taught better giving principles and faithfulness and obedience than people who work full-time jobs they're giving more, and somehow the adult with full-time jobs justifies it, and you scratch your head and you say, I don't get it. 
But I can tell you this, I know it's not right. Because the giving is supposed to be in relation to what we're making. Now somebody tonight, or if they should listen to this sermon online or whatever it may be, they may sit here or hear this and say, Paul didn't say how much I had to give. He just said it had to be in relation to what I have prospered. You're right. So in this particular passage, I won't tell you this is how much you have to give. But I will say this, that if you're a part of the church family, if you are a beneficiary of what happens in this church by way of the teaching, the preaching, the singing, the fellowship, and all that goes with it, you need to be financially involved in this. Not just to meet the needs, but to a great enough extent that we can help meet the needs of those that might come up in our own church or somewhere out there that we deem legitimate. It's the way it ought to be. But I would say this. If you ever get a hold of this principle, if you ever get a grasp of this concept, whenever it comes to the subject of giving, if the light bulb ever goes on, can I tell you this? It'll excite you in ways you have never been excited before. See, the scripture talks about the first fruits, and, and that would not be a, a law thing. It would just be a scriptural principle. Give the first fruits to the Lord, and, and, and if you do that and you honor the Lord with your substance and with your increase, you know what the word has promised? He's promised that He'll bless you and you'll have an abundance and your needs will be met. That's not a prosperity gospel. It just happens to be Bible. If you ever get a hold of the concept, if you ever get a hold of the grasp of truly giving your portion back to the Lord through the ministry of the local church, if you ever get a hold of that and you begin to understand the law of sowing and reaping, you know what you'll want to do? You'll want to sow more. Well, how come? So that you can reap more. Well, then what would I do with the more? Well, you'd sow off of that. Because as you prosper, you would want to give more in relation to how you've prospered, only to get more so that you could give more. And you would be in this terrible, terrible, terrible cycle of like having all your needs met by a faithful God who blesses your faithfulness and obedience to give. I'm just saying there are people in this church who understand it and, and, you know, not going to generate a lot of excitement tonight because they've been doing this for years and they get it, they, they, they grasp it, and they've enjoyed the benefits of it. But I'm just saying if you've struggled with it, I don't care if you're young or old or somewhere in between, if you've struggled with it, if you ever grasp your personal responsibility and then you start doing what you're supposed to be doing, you will enjoy it in ways you never thought possible. Now, so long as you struggle with it, so long as you wrestle with it, so long as you don't apply it to your life, I'll just tell you, it'll continue to frustrate you. 
And it's usually those people who struggle with it. And again, I don't say this with any kind of vindictive spirit or, or, or attitude. I would just say this. It's usually the people who struggle with it who say things like this. The church is just after my money. This may shock you, but most churches are not after the people's money. Well, the preacher's just greedy, and he always preaches on money. Well, I would bet that if you thought about it, you could count all the times that I preach on money in a calendar year. It's not something that I, I labor. Because most of us understand it, and the finances of the church have been blessed. I'm just preaching this message tonight, not because I think most of our church needs it. It just so happens it's where we're at. And there could be some tonight who struggle with the concept, who struggle with the idea. They just don't grasp it. I would say this, test God and see whether or not he's faithful. If if you're just not sure, I, I challenge you, test him, try him, and see if he is faithful. Here's what I promise. If you get a hold of the concept, he will bless in ways that you could never imagine. You'll have testimonies that you would have never dreamed possible. You will see God work in amazing ways, and you'll want to tell other people just how good it is to be involved in the system. So if you struggle with it, I hope it helps. And if we've already got it, I hope it just solidifies in our minds. This is the way it's supposed to be. And I hope it's a help. All right? Let's all stand tonight and bow our heads for prayer. Fathers, I come to you this evening. I do pray that you would help us, Lord, if there is anyone who might be struggling. God, that you would help the light bulb to kind of come on tonight and help them to understand that this is a wonderful principle and this is a wonderful cycle to be a part of and to get involved in. And God, for those who are already in the cycle, who are already a part of this systematic giving, and it's just a part of who they are, God, I pray that you'd continue to bless and continue to meet the needs as you have said you would, and we know that you will. So I pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.